Well, here we go. Beginning today, we're going to spend a couple of months in the Old Testament book, the Song of Solomon. Uh, it's a racy little book, so it should be fun, full of information that you don't even want to talk about. That's wrong. You want to talk about this, and uh, I'm sure we all want to hear about this stuff. But the truth is, many Bible teachers are afraid to talk about this stuff. One, because it's tough. It's, it's hard stuff to, to teach. It's awkward to teach at times. Maybe it makes you blush. Two, maybe their wives just don't want to let them teach it because it kind of opens them up a little bit. I checked with Becky on our way out the door this morning. She said, okay. And so we're going to do it. But uh, listen, uh, as of this week, Amazon.com lists 54,000 books for sale on dating. It lists 211,000 books on marriage, and it lists 360,000 books on sex. Those dating books, as I look through some of them, uh, there, were, there were titles like The Dating Playbook for Men, A Seven-Step Guide to Go from Single to the Woman of Your Dreams. Or there was uh, this book for the ladies, Never Chase Men Again, 38 dating secrets to get the guy, keep him interested, and prevent dead-end relationships. Try to put all of that on on a little cover. Or seven golden rules for dating divorced men. Here's the deal. We live in a culture that is obsessed with these topics, yet undeniably broken with regards to these topics. And even in the titles that that are there for our our help, we we hear the brokenness, like a step-by-step guide. Listen, when my wife and I were dating, if she saw that book on the seat in my car, it would have been over. Well, you got a manual to pursue me? She would not have been cool with that. Or or 38 secrets to prevent dead-end relationships, dead-end relationships, or, or dating divorce divorce in there. See, something is off. And, and, and Christians have had two primary approaches to, to dealing with all this brokenness that we see in our culture. One is silence, and the other is, is scare tactics. I mean, Christians oftentimes will just be silent on this, this topic. We, we just don't go there. We leave it to seventh grade science teachers. Uh, when it comes to relational help, uh, we just leave it to the opinion of our friends, and, that, and that's what we do. And, and here's the problem. Culture is not silent on this stuff, is it? I mean, 360,000 books on sex. Nearly every song you turn on on the radio has something to do with love, relationships, broken relationships, sex. And yet the church wants to be silent. We don't want to talk about it. Something that's so integral to our humanity, to our life experience. Many are just afraid or don't want to go there. They don't want to get uncomfortable and talk about it. And so, silence. But not everyone's silent, are they? There are other people who just, they're not silent. In fact, they're, they're actually very loud. And so their approach is, is scare tactics. Don't do this. It will ruin your mind. It'll ruin your life. It'll ruin everything. It's dangerous. It destroys. It's dirty. It's wrong. It's, it's immoral. When I was a, a little kid, uh, I had a buddy named Samuel. And across the street from Samuel's house was this abandoned house. And it was all boarded up. And constantly our parents were saying, don't go in there. Don't go near it. Stay away from that. So what do you think we did? We went in it, of course, right? We, we went in the back and, and we, we propped ourselves up and kind of opened up a crack in the window and, and, and slithered right in, right? Because what, what, what begins to happen when you hear don't, 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 don't is you start to think, 
are they hiding something awesome from me? <laughs> and so we had to go into the, the house. And, and yet for, for many Christian families with regards to sex and, and intimacy, we hear don't, 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 don't. And what often happens is their children grow up thinking they're hiding something from me. And so they explore and they find perhaps it's not so bad. Because the reality is it's not horrible. It's not so bad. The reality is, it's an amazing gift from God. And, and God has a perfect design. And when lived out and experienced in accordance with his perfect design, it's amazing. It's, it's absolutely amazing. And so historically what the church does is they say, here's what not to do. But what the Song of Solomon will do is say, here's what you're supposed to do. And so over the next few months, that's what we're going to do, is we're going to look at what to do. Enough of the don't, 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 don't. Here's a biblical do. Enjoy. It's a gift from God. In fact, from the very, very beginning, the, the Bible goes there. The very first line of the Bible says, in the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth. That God is a creator God. He's a designer God. And he has a perfect design. And if we would live under his design, under his intention, it's beautiful. It's absolutely incredible. However, what we will find as we go through life is, is living under his design, under his intention, can be a bit of a struggle because we tend to want to do things our way. Anyone? I, I know I, I tend to. And so what happens is very quickly, uh, you go from the first line in Genesis, and then in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve choose to, to sin, and their sin will, will destroy, it will poison every single human relationship. Their marriage that was designed by God for joy and for oneness gets confused, doesn't it? It was designed by God for joy and oneness. It gets confused and, and, and shame enters and a power struggle enters and, and, and pain enters. And, and why is it the pain? It's because they're, they're working against the design that God has given them, the, the path that God has, has given him. And so we're not going to focus on the don't, but we're going to focus on the do. We're going to focus on God's Design And the first place we see the design laid out is in the very next chapter after that first line in Genesis chapter 2, uh, which will serve as our preface to the book of Song of Solomon. And then we'll get into Song of Solomon later uh, in our, our gathering today. So before sin enters into the world, God has this beautiful design for man and for woman. And, and let's read it. Genesis chapter uh, 2. I'm going to read for you and put it up on the screen. 18 through 25. And just listen to God's design. It says, And the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living th every creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. And so the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of a man. That's actually a song that he sings. So it's the first song in the Bible, the love song of the Bible prior to the Song of Solomon. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
So in Genesis chapter 1, God makes everything. And throughout Genesis chapter 1, as you follow the creation of everything, what you see is as he makes things, it says, and he saw that it was good, and he saw that it was good, and that's good, and that's good, and that's good. But after he makes humanity, it it says, behold, he saw that it was very good. Humanity is kind of his prized creation. He absolutely adores you. He wants the best for you. He's not a killjoy. He's got a great plan designed for you. So good, 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 good people, very good. But then in chapter 2, verse 18, the one thing that is not good, he says, is it's not good for the man to be alone. And so he makes a companion for him. That's the woman. And, and God in this perfect knowledge brings all the animals to Adam. And Adam starts coming up with names for the animal. Zebra, giraffe, aardvark. And just starts naming all these animals. And, and, and God, it's, it's so neat. Because as, as God is bringing these animals to Adam, naturally Adam is going to see they come together. They come together. They've got someone perfect fit for them, for them, for them. But for, for him, he saw that he had none. Do you see what God's doing here? God in his perfect design says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to wait for him to see her. I'm going to unveil her at just the right time. I'm going I'm to set it up so that man learns to cherish her and to, to be just so thrilled with her and excited about her and appreciates her. Women, that is how they are to treat you. And if they don't, they're not the right one for you if you're not already married. And so what God does is God puts Adam to, to sleep. He takes a rib out of the side of Adam, closes it up, and then takes the rib and forms the woman from the rib. I mean, that's strange. I get it. I get it. If I was making up a religion, that's not how I would do it because that's just odd. But God is, again, he's creative. He's poetic. And he could have made woman however he wanted. He made Adam from the dust of the ground and then he breathes into him the breath of life. He could have taken a branch from a tree and said, woman. But instead he takes a rib. And in his poetic design, here's what he's doing. He's taking woman from the side of man. Not from the top, dominance, not from the foot and oppression, but right alongside. This is a partnership. This is equality. You are a team. Now you get into verse 22 and you have a wedding. And, and God is both the father and the, the pastor officiating the wedding. You start to see some parallels that you might see in, in a traditional wedding. As the father, he brings her to the man in verse 22. He's saying, she's mine first. And you better treat her well. I'm entrusting her to you. And then as the pastor, he officiates this covenant exchange for, for marriage. And then in verse 24, look, look, look at verse 24. It's an incredibly important passage to marriage. I mean, just incredibly important. It says this, Therefore, so in light of my beautiful design, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Here's how we know this passage is massively important. It's because it's repeated over and over and over again in the Bible. It is the go-to passage 
on marriage. Jesus in Matthew 19, 5, in Mark chapter 10, 7, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 16, 7, 10, and 11, Ephesians 5, 31. And so Genesis 2, 24 is the go-to passage that throughout the Bible God's people keep referencing. This is God's design. Some things in Scripture change. We don't have women wearing head coverings anymore, but this never changes because it goes back to what we call creation mandate. This is always only how God wants it to be. A few things to point out in this passage. First of all is leaving. Hello? Is leaving. It says, therefore. So in light of God's design, a man will leave. And all of this, a man shall. Like this is what shall happen. This is what God wants to happen. This is how God wants it to happen in his perfect plan. And he leaves. Single ladies. If a man has not shown signs of the ability to leave and actually leaving, he's not ready for marriage. He's not. You want a man who has grown up. You want a man who is able to provide, who is able to lead. He needs to show you some serious signs of independence. He needs to. Think financial independence. Who's paying his car insurance? Is he paying his own bills? Can he provide for himself and you? Where is he living? Has he shown signs of emotional independence? Is he a mama's boy? Or can he live on his own? Can he think on his own? Can he, can he live without calling mom every single day? You need to be the new shoulder to cry on. He needs to show spiritual independence. That means he is a man of God. He's got his own faith. He's living it out. He's grown up. He's mature. How can he shepherd you in the home as God calls us to men if they have not shown signs of maturity on their very own? Let me talk to the fellas for a second. Oftentimes, fellas will say, man, it's just there's it's all these options, but just, it seems like there's just a lot of fish in the sea, but nobody's biting. You've got to put good bait on the hook. You've got to be the bait. That's what you need to focus on is being the man that God wants you to be, to grow up, to mature, and to be the man God wants you to be. I'm telling you as a dad, I dread the day, but I pray for it every single day. It's the day I walk my daughter down the aisle, and I'm not going to hand her off until I know this guy is God-fearing, he loves Jesus, he's independent, he can lead her, he can provide for her. Or I'm going to handcuff her to my, my, my car door. So I'm just, she's not going. She's not, it's not happening. First Corinthians chapter, I wouldn't do that. 16, 13 says this. says, be watchful, stand firm, act like men. This is not barbaric masculinity. This is manhood as God speaks about manhood in the scriptures. And so a man, it says, a man shall leave father and mother and he shall hold fast to his wife. Think about holding fast, holding tightly to his wife. He shall leave, and then hold fast is also referred to in Scripture as he shall cleave. In other words, be joined to, adhere to. In the eyes of the Lord, married. In the eyes of the law, married. And so at the end of a wedding ceremony, if done in Massachusetts, I say something along the lines of, in the accordance of God's law and the laws of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, I now present to you for the very first time, Mr. and Mrs., blank. You can insert your name if you'd so like. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. So you are legally joined by the law of God and the law of the land. And it says, 
And what God has joined together, let no man put asunder, which is a quote from Jesus. He says, nothing shall separate this except for death. Now, unfortunately, sin has entered humanity, has tainted humanity, and so things do separate marriages other than death. And if you're divorced and you're in this room, let me just, let me just say to you, God has limitless amounts of grace for you. So don't count yourself out here. God has limitless amounts of grace for you. But we are to leave. We are to cleave or hold fast. And then it says we are to become one flesh. And then and only then are we to become one flesh. That is to become physically one and to enjoy God's gift of of sexual intimacy. And we'll talk more on this in a few weeks uh, coming up here more specifically about that. But, But not just physical intimacy, intimacy and oneness in every single Sense of the word, entirely one. Uh, Bank accounts are merged together. The way you live your life is you don't have your own schedule and she has her schedule or he has his schedule, but your schedules are one. You are working together. You are working in tandem. When she is joyful, you are joyful. When he's hurting, you're hurting. When I go preach before a new crowd and I'm feeling a little bit of nerves, you know who else is feeling some nerves? The cute girl on the second row, my wife, right? That's how it goes. And yet when she gets bold and says, you're going to be all right, I'm praying for you, guess what? I start, to, I start to feel that as well, and I start to be, be just encouraged by her. And, and our oneness works in tandem. We share everything, complete oneness, complete in intimacy. Leave, cleave, become totally one. That's God's design. That's God's intention. And listen, that is God's chronological order. He says, this is how I want it to be done. You leave, and then you cleave, you hold fast before the eyes of the Lord and the eyes of the law of the land, and then you become one, assets, emotionally, spiritually, physically. So the intimacy, physical intimacy happens when? Happens at the wedding day. And again, for the divorced among us, for those among us who you didn't follow this order, God's, God's perfect plan, grace abounds for you. Please hear that. Grace abounds for you. But this is his design, verse 24. This is his intention. And then verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's, that's intimacy. Just completely exposed and not ashamed. But you know the story. Again, chapter 3 of Genesis, sin enters into the world and there's nakedness and shame. And so they go and they cover themselves with fig leaves. But God says, no, 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 I don't want you to, to, to be exposed again. So fig leaves will wither. And so what does he do? He presents the very first animal sacrifice and he gives them coverings of, of animal skins, right? It's a prophetic image of what Jesus will do, that Jesus will give his life to cover our shame. God doesn't want you to live in shame. But that's what happens when sin comes in the world. Jesus takes care of it. And if you both have a relationship with Jesus and you're walking with Jesus, you can live in this perfect design of God. God's design is no shame. No shame. And so in the context then of biblical marriage, what's allowed? Can we talk about that? What's allowed? What, what goes? In the context of biblical marriage, what goes is anything that promotes oneness. Anything that promotes oneness. What's, what's not allowed? Anything that leads to shame. So for you, if it makes you feel disrespected or not cherished, it doesn't go. Some of you have perhaps been abused in your past as, as an adult or as a, as a child. 
And, and listen, just like we talked about in Genesis chapter 3, because of sin, not your spouse, but because sin done to you, you feel shame. Listen, let me, just, let me give you a word of encouragement. Talk to us. Reach out to us. We want to help you. We want to give you some counsel and care and get you connected to the recovery that you, you need. But God's design is no shame. God's design is oneness and ultimately oneness that leads to worship. Because everything that God gives us is designed to be turned back into worship. And everything that God gives us can also be abused, can't it? Sex can be abused and not turned ultimately into worship. Thank you, God, for this great gift. Wine can be abused and too much of it can, cannot be something that you appreciate and cherish. What a great gift of God. You can abuse it and it's not used for worship. Eating. He says, I, I want you to enjoy food. I could have made it bland and just like filling your stomach and that's it. But he makes you enjoy it. But you can abuse that. You can abuse anything. Everything God's given us is for worship. But God has given us this as a great, great gift. Now, long before we get there, we need to start there because that's where our minds go with Song of Solomon. Long before we get there, we have to start at the very early stages of budding relationships. And maybe some of you are there right now. Maybe you're long past that. You're going to have other people in your life. You get to help through that. But let me just, let me just start here. We want to start with Song of Solomon with specifically with attraction. And so the, the rest of our morning, that's what we're going to do, is we're going to talk about uh, attraction. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, 1 through 7, if you want to take a Bible and head on over there, is where we're going to be the rest of the morning. Now, we have Bible up on the screen here. We've got Bibles around the room. If you want one of your own that you don't have, bring it home. We'd love for you to have that. But, but chapter 1, 1 through 7, while you're turning there, Again, some people might say, what are we doing this for? Like, why are we talking about this? It gets racy, it's crazy, it's kind of hairy. Let me just remind you, this is God's word. Acts chapter 20, verse 27 tells me as a pastor that I'm, I'm called to preach the whole counsel of God. I can't just pick and, and choose. The example before me is to preach everything in the Bible. And this is in the Bible, and so we've got to talk about it. You can be taught by pop culture or you can be taught by your pastors. You can be taught by 360,000 books on Amazon, or you can be taught by the one book. And within it, Song of Solomon that is here for a reason. So it's in here. But now, what do we do with this book that you've now got your eyes on, hopefully? What do, what do we do with this? How, how, do we, how do we handle it? Some will teach it allegorically. Here's what allegorically means. You, you just disregard the obvious meaning and you push for a deeper, more spiritual meaning. And some people would say, no, this isn't about man and a woman, but this is absolutely just about God and his people. First of all, weird. Second of all, Wherever this happens in the Bible, where God uses love and romance and marriage to, to speak about him and his people, it's much less explicit. Some examples. Isaiah chapter 62, 5. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. You see that? Ephesians chapter 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for you. So much more vague a lot less explicit than the Song of Solomon will get. And so I believe that allegory is a bit of a stretch. But can we learn about the love of God for his people here? Yeah, absolutely. First John chapter 4, 8 says God is what? Anybody? God is love. And, and, and so whenever we hear about love, uh, God really wants, he does want our minds to go to, you are love, you created this. This is the very essence of, of who you are, God. 
But to say that this is purely allegory, I think, is a bit of a stretch. Here's our interpretation, our understanding of the Song of Solomon, and that is that it's literal. Now, there's some other ways you could take it that are way more technical, but, but generally speaking, it's allegory or it's literal, that it is about a husband and a wife. And we can learn some allegorical things about the love of God for us, but it's certainly not the main point. The main point is a husband and a wife and love, specifically romantic love and relationship with in the context of God's perfect design. It's a love song, or it's a collection of love songs between a husband and a wife, and it kind of goes back and forth, and even uh, it's, it's kind of hard to decipher and lots of different ways to, to, to work through this, but, but it goes back and forth, and, and, and it's love, and it's poetry, and it's great metaphors, and it's fun, and it's direct, and there's no shame in it. It's just a beautiful, beautiful book here, and it's included here because we need it. Now, three main characters. If you just want to kind of flip through it, you'll see your Bible has provided for you some headings to help you uh, differentiate between who's talking. That's not the original language inspired, but as you study through the, the Hebrew, uh, scholars have put those headings in there so that you can understand it because it's not in Hebrew and you don't know Hebrew. Three main characters and, and their headings are in there. There's, first of all, Solomon, and then there's uh, this, this woman, and then there's the others. And so the, the man is Solomon. We're told that six different times in the book. This is Solomon. He's the son of King David and Bathsheba. Crazy story. We'll, we'll talk about that at some point down the road. And, and when he assumes Solomon, the throne of his father, David, he could have asked for anything, but maybe you know the story. Instead of asking for anything, he says, God, I just need wisdom to lead your people. And God says, wow, you could have asked for anything, you could ask for wealth, you could have asked for possessions, you could have asked for honor, you could have asked for long life, you could have asked for the death of your loved one. God was so pleased that Solomon asked for wisdom that he says, here's what I'll do. I'll give you wisdom and you'll have wisdom that is unmatched in the history of humanity, but I'll also give you the riches, the possessions, the honor above everyone else that you didn't even ask for. And so God is really pleased with his request for wisdom and and God will use Solomon in his life to just write some incredible, just incredible scripture. God the Holy Spirit moving through Solomon. Incredible wisdom scripture. And so there's the Song of Solomon that we're looking at now at the very beginning of his life. There's the Proverbs that is written over a lifetime. And there's Ecclesiastes that's written at the end of his life, looking back on his life and acknowledging some of his mistakes that he made. And if you know Solomon's story, he made some crazy mistakes. I mean, just massive mistakes. Beginning in 1 Kings chapter 3, he starts to build marriage alliances with other people, with other countries, beginning with, with Egypt and Pharaoh's daughter. And we look back and it says that he eventually has a thousand wives. That's obviously a rounded out number, marriage alliances. Now, let me just say this. God does not, obviously, does not approve of this lifestyle. I could sit here and just walk you through scriptures for a long time and show you God does not approve of this lifestyle. And in fact, here's what God declares of Solomon. He says, eventually, because of your behavior and your lifestyle and not adhering to my commands, I'm going to tear the kingdom away from you. And he does do that. See, Solomon started out well, but he finished poorly. So some people might ask, well, well, why would we even listen to a guy like this? What could he possibly teach us about marriage? I want to remind you that throughout the Bible, here's what God does as a picture of his grace. God uses imperfect people to share his perfect message. 
And also remember that at the end of Solomon's life, Ecclesiastes, you might want to read it to help you, support you in going through Song of Solomon. He looks back and he sees his sin and he sees his lifestyle and he warns against it. He acknowledges, I made some massive mistakes. But this book is at the beginning of his life before it all goes south. So that's the man, Solomon. Next is the the woman. Chapter 6, verse 13 will tell us that she's a Shulamite. We don't know a whole lot about her. She's a a Shulamite. That's the region she's from. She's this poor peasant girl. And somehow she gets connected to Solomon. And and we know that she's working hard out in the fields. And and she gets connected to Solomon. We'll talk more about her in just a minute. And then the third character that we have are the others. Primarily the the girlfriends who will chime in every now and again. Her, her, Her buddies will chime in kind of as backup singers every now and again in this song. And and men, the girlfriends are very important. Ladies, am I right? Am I lying? The girlfriends are very important. Back when I was uh, a college student and uh, uh, pursuing my wife, I was a pizza boy part-time because I was saving up a lot of money to to put a rock on her finger. And uh, I remember my best tactic, if I can just say this, my best tactic was as a pizza boy, bring pizza home for her girlfriends. And man, I just won those girls over fast. Learn from me, young disciples. <laughs> the, the girlfriends are very important. And the girlfriends will chime in often in this book with their opinion. Because, ladies, that's how it goes, right? They chime in with their opinion, and their opinion matters. And so those are the characters. Those are the three main characters. And now let's move on to the content. Are you ready? That was a long introduction. Here we go. Verse 1. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Song of Songs. You've heard this biblical language before. King of kings, Lord of lords, referring to Jesus. That means he's the ultimate king. He's the ultimate Lord. He's above every king. He's above every Lord. Song of songs would mean the same thing. This is the ultimate. This is the best song. This is a song above all the other songs. Solomon wrote 3,000 Proverbs, 1,005 songs, and this is his best. He wasn't some one-hit wonder. No, he was at every single Grammy Award for years after year after year, but this one is his best. And and, and now in the first seven verses, we'll focus in on attraction, as I've already told you. You remember, do you remember when you were first, the first time feeling attraction for someone? Let your mind go there. I remember her name was, it was first grade, her name was Heaven. No lie. I mean, I just couldn't couldn't set that up more perfectly. Her name was Heaven, and she was heavenly. And I remember, uh, I remember, I never spoke a single word to Heaven in my entire life. Uh, Never did. And uh, yet, you go through my yearbook, and when Heaven's picture was in there, there was a heart around her picture because I just, I was attracted to her. And then as you transition into late elementary school, uh, things change a little bit, and, and attraction is, is oftentimes uh, kind of seen or manifested by teasing, by joking, uh, or even, oh, they're gross, dislike of them. And, and it's essentially what, what's happening is I have feelings, and I don't quite know what to do with these feelings, right? And then you transition into to middle school and even early high school, and you begin to, to notice them, and, and, and it's not, I don't like them, or they're gross, or I'm going to tease them. It's, I want to kind of be near them. And so you have these awkward attempts at proximity, you know, and I want to be, be near them. You remember the awkward conversations you had as a junior higher with, with people of the opposite sex? I mean, just, just weird. I mean, you remember the the, the phone I had to tell my kids uh, not long ago, it was maybe a, months ago, telling my kids about this thing that we called the wall phone. 
the, the phone that was actually connected to the wall, and they really said, what? It was so odd to them because we just do cell phone. We don't even have a house phone anymore. And, uh, and so I remember going with the, the wall phone and, and curling around the corner and, and trying to get as much privacy in my little house as I could and, and calling and just, please pick up, please pick up, because I did not want one of her parents to pick up. Remember the feeling? Because then you had to go, uh, uh, can, can I talk to Jessica? I never dated a Jessica, but I'm just throwing that out there. As a, and you just do it. And I literally, here's what I did. My conversations were so awkward. I literally took a piece of paper and wrote out some conversation starters <laughs> because I just, I knew I just didn't, I wasn't going to know what to say. And so like, what's your favorite ride at Six Flags? <laughs> or uh, do you like TV? Well, of course you do. I mean, what's your favorite television show? You know, and just, just these awkward conversation starters. You just, you, you're being socially developed and you want to talk to them because you're attracted. You want to, you want to be near them. Proximity is important. But as you grow older, you, you really can't help but notice people, and, and you're drawn to people, and, and, and now what starts to happen is you start to spend more time in front of a mirror, trying to look good, trying to smell good, so that, that not only are you attracted to them, but you want to try to bait them into being attracted to you. And, and remember, let me just say this, awkward, and we fumble through it in our humanity, let me just say this, this is all part of God's design. Like these emotions that start to well up and we, we fumble and we don't know what to do and say. It, it's part of God's d- design. Now here's how we'll define attraction this morning. And that is attraction is that natural pull towards another person where you desire to be near and spend time with them. It's, that, it's just a natural pull and you find that you just want to be near and, and you want to spend time with them. And, and, and generally when we say I'm attracted to someone, here's what we're saying. We're saying I like how they look. Generally speaking, that's, that's what we mean. And you might be surprised to hear this in church, but, but I'm going to give you a few points here, and then we'll close out. Here's the first one. You might be surprised to hear this in church, but physical attraction counts. Yeah, yeah it, it, it counts. The Bible never invalidates physical attraction. And in fact, this song opens up like this. Look at, look at verse 2. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. So the Shulamite woman saw Solomon, and he pleased her. Her her initial feeling is, I need that man to lay a kiss on me right now. Right? That was her initial feeling. Now, 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 that's not what happens. He doesn't just run up and lay one on her, and she says, that's what I was hoping for. But that's that initial feeling, that, that physical attraction. And throughout the Bible, the Bible will describe it, but also validate physical attraction. Again, part of God's beautiful design that he, he allows us to be drawn to each other. As we read earlier in Genesis uh, chapter 2, Adam sees Eve for the very first time, whoa, and he breaks out in song. Just naked and exposed, and there's no confusion like there is for people today. It's just, wow, and he starts singing, right? Alas, this is what I've been longing for. Whoa, I had a professor in college uh, who was like a Hebrew scholar, and he said, essentially, he said, whoa, man, and that's how she got her name. And, and so she was, he named her woman, right? And, and, and so that happens. And in Genesis chapter 29, later on, However, there's, there's this guy, Jacob, and he sees this girl, Leah, nothing. Feels nothing for Leah, but he sees her sister, Rachel, whoa. Says that he saw that she was beautiful in form 
and in appearance. Now, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, so it doesn't mean that she's necessarily more beautiful, but according to what he sees and what he desires and what he's attracted to, she's beautiful. The, the Bible teaches us, obviously, to look more, for more than, than things that are physical for physical attraction, but it certainly doesn't teach us to ignore physical attraction. In fact, this is, this is odd, but as, as you grow older, the Bible even encourages it. Proverbs 5, 19, says, there's a father encouraging his son. He says this, for his wife's physical body to fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always by her love. So he says, at all times, always enjoy her physically. I want you always to, that means always, as you grow older, it's not like, well, that was a thing of the past, we're not attracted to each other anymore, now we just love each other's heart. No, you train your mind and your eyes to, to continually be attracted. I mean, how cool is it that God in his perfect design has designed it such that we're attracted to different types of people? It speaks to the creativity of God. Beautiful designer. And I'll say this, for those who are married, find out what's physically attractive to your spouse and do it (laughs) and go for it. Men, is she into the beard? If not, you better get rid of that thing, right? Women, does he like brown hair or blonde hair? If, if you know he likes you as a brunette, don't show up and surprise him and suddenly you're blonde. That's like my worst nightmare every time she goes to the hairstylist because I, I know how she is. I know how she is with our living room. You know, she's just like, oh, we got to get new pillows, we gotta, new curtains. I said, I thought we bought those like, it was only three years ago. Yeah, three years. But I just, it feels to me like she's changing it every other week, you know, and I'm always afraid that that's what's going to happen when she comes home from the hairstylist. I'm like, oh, please don't be blonde. Not that, no offense to blonde people, but I like my wife. Brown and curly. And so, oh man, just find out what it is that your spouse likes and is attracted to and and go after that. And I'll say this, health is important. Pursue being healthy for your partner. But at the same time, I'll say this, I'll warn you, be cautious here. Don't don't set unrealistic expectations. Your man's not going to be running a five-minute mile when he's 45. I mean, don't, don't, listen, don't, don't do that, right? Don't do that. But, but seek to serve each other. The Bible tells us to sacrificially serve each other the way Christ served us to the point of death. And so go far to serve them, even in this area of physical beauty and attraction. Now, here's I'll say this. Once you're married, your spouse is always your standard of beauty because they're going to change that's what happens. We get older, we get wrinkly, hair falls out. Your spouse is always your standard of beauty. Always. Always. And so you don't say, man, now we're, we're 50. And I, uh, my standard of beauty is what she was when we were 25. No, her at 50. That's your standard of, of beauty. And so just hear me. The Bible says physical attraction counts. It doesn't invalidate it. Here's the next point I want to give you is that physical attraction confuses. Really important. It counts, but it also confuses. Here's the warning from the Scriptures. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 30. says, Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So you're going and pursuing the deeper things. Not that he wants you to ignore the physical. You're pursuing the deeper things. A woman who fears the Lord. But listen... 
it can be confusing, the attraction, the stuff that's, that's skin deep, deceiving. Beauty is vain. What's the warning? Beauty is vain, which means we can be confused into only seeing, deceived into only seeing what's, what's outward and missing what's deeper or ignoring what's deeper because the outward is so nice. And so we have to be very, very careful here. You ever been there? I wonder if anybody's ever been there. Or somebody, you were just so attracted to them, so drawn to them, and they open their mouth and you say, whoa, I was wrong. Suddenly they're not so attractive anymore. We get blinded by the outward radiance and ignore the internal sometimes. Listen, do yourself a favor. Don't ignore. Don't be the optimist all the time. If you have some red flags come out, listen to the red flags. Satan himself knows our weaknesses when it comes to beauty. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, will say that he masquerades as an angel of light. He puts a mask on and, and, and tries to look all beautiful, but he's incredibly, incredibly dangerous. For those of you who are married, physical attraction can still mess you up. As a, as a married man or a married woman, think David and Bathsheba. Story of David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba is a married woman, but David, what is he doing? He's hanging out and he sees this woman bathing over there on the rooftop. And he just completely ignores the fact that she's married. He couldn't help himself. We've got to be careful here. We've got to guard ourselves. She's so beautiful, though. But, man, it'll mess you up. Guard yourself. Your space. Guard your relationship with coworkers, men and women. Be very careful about how you relate with people of the opposite sex, the time you spend with them, the way you interact with them, car rides that you take with them. This is not a scare tactic, by the way. Josh, you said don't use scare tactics. It's not a scare tactic. The Bible calls all of this delighting in the wife of your youth. And so it's not a scare tactic. It's calling you to something better, that you can delight in the same person forever and ever till death do you part. Married people, physical attraction can confuse you into making terrible mistakes. And single people, Physical attraction can confuse you to only look at the outward and ignore the stuff that is much more important. Now, another point. Since physical attraction confuses, character attraction clarifies. Character attraction clarifies. Back to our song. If you look at verse 3, she says of Solomon, your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. What is it speaking of? Speaking of his name, his, his character. It's like good smelling aromatic oil. It's just, it's so nice. Yes, she's physically attracted him. I'll let him kiss me, but she's careful not to be confused by the physical attraction alone. What does she do? She does some research, doesn't she? And she goes on, she says, the, the virgins love you. That is what, what the Bible often calls young women. The virgins love you. In other words, he didn't have this reputation with the other ladies as that guy is a rotten player. No, they, they love you. They, re, they respect you. So many people respect him. Singles, let me ask you a question. If you're in this room and you're single, there, there's somebody that catches your eye. You're attracted to them. Could you do a little research about them before you actually pursue them? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely you can. 
You can talk to their pastors if they have a pastor, their friends. You can talk to their connection group leader if they're at another church, their, their friends over there, their group leader over there. I mean, we got this amazing invention called Facebook. I mean, do some, is it, is it scandalous? Look, I mean, do what you got to do. But you can do a little Sherlock Holmes before you actually have to go and get a lot of time with him. You can do your research. He says, wow, he's amazing. Wow, I want him to kiss me. But what are other people saying about him? And they're saying good things about him. His name, his character. They, they sing his, his, his praises. And then here's what she does. She gets some time with him herself. Look at verse four. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. So now she's getting to spend time with him. She gets to go into the, the palace of the king. She's spending time with him. And, and we'll see next week that she's not yet fully committed to him here. She's still investigating here. And I know there's this, this, this long-standing debate among believers about do you date, do you court, what, is this, what, what works, do we arrange marriages, I mean, what, do we, what, do, what do we do here? Listen, I'm kind of a fan of the good old-fashioned date. And by, by good old-fashioned date, here's what I mean, a date without commitment. For some reason, we turned, I remember when I was in middle school, if you said, would you go out with me, that means I'm yours, right? Like we are, we're, we're to, we're, this is my girlfriend, just one little question, that's it, right? You remember that? But, but the good old fact, can we get some time together? I'm kind of a fan of just some, some time together. No, no commitment, no expectation at all for a kiss at the end, no expectation at all for anything else, no expectation that by the end of this thing, we're going to have it all figured out. We're just spending time together. A little personal investigation. The other ladies did some investigation. They came back and said, yep, good reputation. I'm going I'm to go on myself because I'm not going to trust everybody. This is a big deal. I'm going to do some investigation. And then the second half of verse 4, the backup singers uh, affirm his character. They say, we will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Rightly do the young virgins love you. And so she's learned about his character. And we also see that he learns about her character. Look at, look at verses uh, 5 and 6 with me for a minute. Now it's the she section here. I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but now my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you who my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, for why should I be like the one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? I, I love this. We learned a little bit about her here, didn't we? We learned that she is dark-skinned because of the sun. Brothers were cruel to her. They made her do the work to provide for the, the family. So she's out there working the vineyards. And, and in our culture, dark skin is, is we like that. We, we tan or we spray or whatever it is that, that people do. But in that culture, fair skin was in, right? I mean, that meant that you were inside you were taking care of yourself. People were looking after you. You weren't outside working hard like a, like a peasant. And so fair skin was in. And, and you can tell she's very self-conscious about the fact that she's got dark skin. And we'll talk more about this, but I love how he's going to treat her in light of where she's sensitive. You're going to see that later on. So hang, come back next week. It's, it's just so good what he does with, with her and, and how she's self-conscious. But he, he looks past all of the, the insecurities that she has, and he's still drawn to her. He's still attracted to her. It's because of her character. She's a hard worker. 
She puts the needs of her family above her own needs. She's out keeping the vineyard. She says, my own vineyard I have not kept. What she's speaking of is my own body. I've not taken care of my skin because I've been out so, she's been out working so hard. Pursuing family over vanity. And Solomon likes it. He likes it. Some of you maybe just insecurely think, no one can be attracted to me. You got things that you're insecure about. Listen, God is good. God's got a good plan for you. And he's saying, no, no, no. High caliber people are attracted to high caliber people. You work on your character more than vanity, and I will give you great people. There will be somebody who is attracted to you that is just amazing. Don't compromise. Listen, do not compromise. Don't. Don't do it. And then last verse, verse 7. What is she doing? Verse 7, she's, she's researched from afar, but, but, but now she researches up close, and, and, and she, she likes what she's, she's seen. She's had friends look at him, and, and now she's up close, got some time with him in his palace. But now verse 7, she's moving towards commitment. And, and let me just say this. When you first meet somebody and you're attracted to somebody, be very careful, move very slowly. Don't make inappropriate commitments to them too early. But in time... As you've done your research, you've figured some things out, then it's good to pursue commitment. Commitment is good. And so here's, the, here's just the last point. When you have total attraction, that leads to commitment. Total attraction, which means, yes, the physical and then also the, the character attraction. Then that will lead to commitment. You're attracted to the total package. You've done your homework. It's justified. You pursue commitment at that point. She says to him, she says, tell me, where do you pass your flock? In other words, wherever you go, that's where, that's where I want to be. Wherever you find your nourishment, I want to go and I want to find my nourishment up, up, up beside you. That, that's commitment. She says, I don't want to be like the one who, who veils herself beside the flocks. That is, I don't want to be like that, that woman who is, who is covered up and craftily sneaking around near you and the other, other guys seeking a hookup. I don't want that kind of life. I want commitment. I want, to, I want to be committed. Commitment is a good thing. It's a rare thing to find, but it's a, it's a very good thing. So let me, let, me, let me warn you this way as we round third base. Before you pursue commitment, you need to ask yourself a question about the other person. And that is before I'm going to commit to them and let them commit to me, how have they committed to other opportunities for commitment in their own lives? In other words, are they a committed type person? First of all, are they, are they committed to Jesus? Most important question. They have a, a vibrant relationship with God. Are they shown commitment? Or are they vacillating? Yes, I love them. No, I don't. Yeah, back. Are they committed to, to Christ? Are they committed to their job? Can they hold a job? How have they shown commitment in, in, in less important relationships? Important relationships, but less important relationships. Like friends? Are they a committed friend? Are they committed to their church family? Or they just kind of bounce around and just go wherever's hip and cool and they don't have longevity. They don't know how to deal with, with challenging relational things that arise in church families. Do they, do they show commitment? And if they can't show it, don't jump into a committed relationship. You have to be careful about commitment. But pursue commitment. All of this is leading where? To God's perfect, perfect design of oneness in a relationship that leads to worship so hear our heart in all of this that our heart is is not to keep you out of this scary abandoned house our heart 
is to bring you towards the amazing home that God is building for you. God wants to build something beautiful for you. You can, you can go and you can slip into the scary house. But what I found, I went inside, it was pretty unsatisfying. A bunch of rats and, and newspapers. Or you can say, I, I want to pursue the home that God designed for me. It's an incredible plan, incredible design that God is leading me to. I want you to be patient. I want you to trust God. I want you to pursue God. In the meantime, that is put the right bait on the hook. God has a good plan for every single one of us. Let's be cautious. Let's be biblical. Let's be godly in how we deal with attraction. In just a moment, we're going to pray. And uh, here's, here's, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for, for some of us in here to, to, to just really and fully enjoy God's perfect design. Whether that's right now, you're, you're in it. Or it's down the road, you're, you're pursuing it, you're preparing for it, you're living it out right now, just all of the stuff that starts as a young child and attract all of that, you're in the midst of it. I pray that God would allow you to enjoy his perfect design in the season of your life. You would pursue him. For others of you, you're at a place right now, maybe if you were to be really honest with yourself, that you haven't even submitted your heart to God yet. You haven't come up under the leadership of God. So when it says, in the beginning, God, we're saying, God made all things. God is in control. And, and he expects us as people to, to come up under his rule and his reign and to trust in him. Genesis chapter 3, the relationship between God and man was broken. That's sin. But God is so good, when he could have wiped his hands of us, he sends his son Jesus to come to earth to live in our shoes, the perfect life we can never live undeserving of the result of sin, which is death, but he died laying down his life on the cross for you and for me so that you could be restored back to right relationship with God and restored to right relationship with people. And so before we say, I want to go live out this plan of God, the first step is to come up under submission to God and trust him and his work on the cross for you. So wherever you're at, I want to call you to respond. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a minute just to close our eyes and I'm going to pray for us. And so would you guys go to God with me and just in your own heart, as we pray and as we sing and as we respond, I want to encourage you to do whatever it is that you need to do to deal with the Lord, however it is that you need to deal with the Lord. Maybe it's God, I trust you. God, I'm confused. I'm drawn to someone. I'm waiting. Whatever it may be, wherever you're at, God, I'm in a marriage that's difficult. I know you don't want me to bail because it's till death do us part, but I'm tempted to bail. Where, wherever you're at, whatever you're going through, you just, would you talk to God? And I'm praying, God, that you would just encourage their hearts. God, just, just develop in their hearts faith in you and trust in you. And then, Father, if there's anybody in here who doesn't know Jesus, I pray, God, that you would stir their hearts to trust you for the very first time, to give their life to you, to submit their lives up under the plan of God through Jesus. And so God, we love you. We thank you that you have a perfect plan and that we are your prized creation. And you set it up such that we can just have the life that you want us to have to the fullest should we walk in submission to you. Walk in accordance with your plan. And so do your work in our hearts as we respond now. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.